So the children of Israel are on the brink of civil war. After all that they've been through, which we've been learning about over the past few weeks, it looks like the dream of a united nation living in the land that God had prepared for them is over even before it started. The Western tribes have mobilized their armies, their army, and they've met at Shiloh. They haven't even recuperated from their successful seven-year-long campaign in Canaan, and already they are poised to cross back over the Jordan and wage a war against the two-and-a-half Transjordan tribes, which are the Israelites living on the other side of the Jordan, living on the east of the Jordan. So the west is ready to invade the east. Israelite is ready to take up arms against fellow Israelite. The peace is about to be shattered and thousands of lives will for sure be lost. And what for? What has brought this on? Let's turn to verse 10 of Joshua chapter 22 to find out what led them here. Verse 10 of Joshua chapter 22 says this. When they came to Galiloth, near the Jordan, in the land land of Canaan, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who are the eastern tribes, they built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan, at Galiloth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel They gathered at Shiloh uh, in order to go to war against them. And the question here is, why are they going? Why are they ready for a war? What is the big deal here? And the answer is, it's something to do with this massive altar, this imposing altar, which the eastern tribes have made. And, And this is the reason... Because as we read in Joshua chapter 18, verse 1, the worship place for God was at Shiloh. This was where the worship of God was supposed to happen. You know, it's, it's, it was the one location. You know, this is where God had chosen to let his, um, himself live, you know, in a sense. You know, you would go there to Shiloh and that's where the Holy of Holies was. You know, that's where he was. But now, the eastern tribes have gone and created a new altar. It's an imposing altar. It's a rival altar. And so before they can even sit down and actually take a breath, the eastern tribes have moved away from the rules which the Lord laid down, his instructions. They are rebelling against him, and this means war. You know, in the past couple of weeks in our series um, called Inheritance, we've been watching the, the Israelites settle into their new home. The rooms were assigned and everyone has unpacked their stuff. And we heard yeah, the tribes of Joseph whine and complain um, that they didn't have enough land. Uh, they wanted it handed to them on a platter. They were rather, rather entitled and... 
yet as a contrast, as a foil, we, we hear Caleb say in chapter 14, verse 10, here I am, 85 years old, I'm still as strong as I was back then, now give me this hill country. And what God is showing us through this is that we can either go through life entitled and sulking uh, that God's not giving us what we think we should have, or we can understand that with God's grace and his power and our perseverance and our hard work that we can clear yeah, the, the land and the territory and we can claim it for ourselves. And the question we asked then in that sermon was what type of of, of what type of person are you? And then we heard about the Levitical cities, that these were cities set aside for the Levites, and one of, and out of these, God earmarked six cities that were known as cities of refuge, where folks that were, 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 had accidentally maybe killed someone, they could flee for refuge and for sanctuary. And we learned that Christ is the ultimate city of refuge, because it's not just those um, who didn't mean, you know, to sin. It's not just those who can flee to him, but it's those who are guilty, who are horrible, who are absolutely wicked, that we can all flee to him and find refuge through the cross. And that, of course, means you. You are one of those people. You are the guilty one and me as well. So that's what we learned there. But now we're looking at Joshua chapter 22. And next week, we're going to delve into Joshua chapter 23 and 24, which actually brings us right to the end of our inheritance series. And after the inheritance series has ended, we're going to plunge straight into looking at the book of Mark, looking at Christ, who is the servant king. And I'm really excited about it. And it's worth mentioning now that the reason why I'm preaching through the books of the Bible is... Um, it's actually a very specific reason, and maybe you're wondering, well, why don't you just like find a theme and preach through, the, through this theme? Well, the reason is because I think that preaching through the books of the Bible actually gives us the best um, knowledge and the understanding of who the Lord is. And it also helps me to not only look at these maybe verses which 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 I like all these themes which are meaningful to me. Um, and it also helps me to look and helps us to look at the hard parts of the Bible that if it was left up to us, we would kind of walk around and pretend that it wasn't there, you know, like the awkward uncle at the family get-togethers. But so when we preach through the books of the Bible, you know, we're actually saying, Lord, who who you are in the Bible, that's more important than how I think you are in my own mind. So show me who you really are. And so that was one of the reasons why my first book to go through was one of the ones that I was scared, most scared about, um, which is the book of Joshua. So that's why I do it. And what happens is that as we meet week after week and we see God being revealed through a book of the Bible, our, our knowledge of God is getting more profound and more, more sharp. Um, which, which then means our worship will also improve because our worship of God is not only as good as our knowledge of Him because vague thoughts about God equals vague worship for God. Whereas, um, Specific and true thoughts about him equals specific and true worship to him. So let's try to be the most specific and true worshippers that we're able to be. This is why uh, I preach through the books of the Bible. Um, 
So returning to where, where we are now in the book of Joshua chapter 22. So, so what's happened up until this moment is that, yeah, the eastern tribes, they said that they would help their western brothers move into the land and win it. And they have. The, the, the mission is now over. And so Joshua sends them on their way with a grateful blessing. They have done what they said they would do. And if we read verse 4 of Joshua chapter 22, this is what he says. He says, now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the command and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. And listen to this, because this is awesome. That you love the Lord your God, that you walk in obedience to him, that you keep his commands and to hold fast to him and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And I think that that verse there, verse 5, is an excellent way of looking at the life that we're called to in Christ after we've experienced redemption and liberation from sin, after we've had our sins and the guilt of our sins removed from us, what does life look like after that? After the, after, after, after we've experienced the reality of the Spirit living inside us, what does like life look after? After that, it looks like Joshua chapter 22 verse 5. And we could spend a whole, whole message on that one verse. So what I'd like you to do is to make a note of that, Joshua 22 verse 5. And when you go home, what you can do is you can use it as a spiritual list that you can look at and say, God, how am I doing here? Am I careful to obey your words? Lord, do I love you? Lord, am I walking in obedience to you? Lord, am I keeping your, your, your commands? Lord, am I holding fast onto you? I love that phrase. Lord, am I holding fast onto you? And then, Lord, am I serving you with all my heart and with all my soul? Because that's what the Christian life should look like. And so the Eastern tribes cross over the Jordan and they head home. But it's only then, after they've headed home, that the Western tribes realize something. And they realize that the Eastern tribes have created an altar near the border, near the river. And so before we move any further, I want us to make a note of this following question. It's an important question. And the question is this. What's one more thing I need to know about this situation? Let me say it again. What's one more thing that I need to know about this situation. Now, this is a question which I learned from my mentor and my boss on the ship, Lloyd Nicholas. He was the um, managing director of the ship of the Logos Hope, where I served with my family for four years, and I was the personnel manager. And for a time, I answered straight, straight to him. You see, in my job as personnel manager, I I, I knew a lot of the messy relationship stuff that went on there on the ship. And I knew a lot of the sin as well that happened there on the ship. And lots of these things that you would think, well, missionaries shouldn't really do that. Well, they did it. And I was aware of it. And sometimes that was even me, right? Because we're, um, because, you know, I'm a human being as well, but, but, you know, 
I knew that this stuff was happening. And, uh, and so when I was in the, in the midst of this mess, trying to work it out, um, Lloyd would say to me, what's one more thing that you need to know about the situation? And when he said that to me, it would, frust- it would frustrate me uh, because I would be sat there in his office full of righteous indignation, ready to say to this person that they were either confined to the ship for a week or, or to ring their home office to work out a way that we could send them home soon. And in the midst of this, Lloyd would come up to me and he'd say, what's one more thing that you need to know about this situation? And I sat there thinking, but... I know all that I have to know. I know the facts. I have their file. That's all there is really to it. But the question still hung there, and I knew what Lloyd was saying. He was saying, if I knew one more thing, the right fact, the the right piece of information about this situation, would it change how I'm viewing it? And I knew that it made sense, but I didn't like it. But since he was the... managing director, I had to listen to him, and so I did. You see, because naturally, I'm a bit of a black and white sort of a guy. I can jump to really quick conclusions. Sometimes after a long work day, you know, I can come home and something one of my kids does just rubs me up the wrong way. And of course, they're doing it on purpose just to annoy me because that's what they've been thinking about all day is how can they annoy dad when he comes home? And so I react. Sometimes I'm harsher than I would like. And as soon as it happens, I realize it and I feel terrible. And it's humbling to have to come back and say, look, I'm sorry I was wrong. Please forgive me. Which brings me back to to this question, this question that kind of sits over this passage, over Joshua chapter 22. What's one more thing I need to know about this situation? Because here's the thing. The Western tribes were missing something. They were missing a crucial piece of information, something that would change everything. And so I'm grateful, and I'm sure they were as well, that at the moment they, that, that they were there on the banks of the Jordan, ready to you know, to go to war against um, yeah, the eastern tribes, they stopped. Now, when someone has, has done something that either has hurt you or harmed you in some way or has caused you to question their intentions, then the first thing that you have to do, as we see on this screen, is to hold up, which means stop, which means slow down which means resist your assumptions because we're all experts at drawing premature conclusions. But we're not so great at questioning our premature conclusions. We can create a something in our minds that is nothing more than fiction, but for us, it feels so real. We trust our interpretation of events way too easily, and that's what happened with the Western tribes. So the first thing that when we attempt to draw conclusions from the actions of someone else is that so that when we attempted to race over the river in anger and righteous, righteous indignation, we have to hold up. You have to resist your assumptions. Don't jump 
to conclusions about someone's intentions based on what you see. We have to hold up. We have to pause. We need to ask, what's one more thing I need to know about this situation that could shed some light on it? Secondly, after we hold up, we need to speak up. We have to reach out. We have to have the conversation. Now, this is hard, especially when when all of the proof and the evidence shows that the other individual is in the wrong. And that's why even though the Western tribes were quick to be ready to fight, um, I'm so glad that they paused and they sent out an investigation team to meet with the supposedly rebellious tribes on the east. They spoke up. Verse 13 says this. So the Israelites sent Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben and to Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben and to Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord, and now you are turning away from the Lord. So in essence, what they're saying is, what are you doing? What is going on here? And then as, as, as we just read in verse 17, they, they reference this thing, this place called Peor, and then in verse, uh, 20, they reference uh, a man called Achan, who you might remember that I preached on before. And both of these references were very fresh in the minds of the Israelites. Uh, because, because at the, at, uh, Peor, there were 24,000 people who died because of the sins of a group. And then we, and then later we read about Achan who stole something and, and, and since he stole something, the whole of the family um, really had to pay. And so when the Western tribes reference these, these specific accounts, what they're saying is, if you choose to sin right now, if this thing, if this thing carries on, it's going to impact everyone. And I can't fault the Western tribes in their fear. Because what they want is to make sure that another payor or, or, or another Achan never happens again. They know, so the Western tribes know that there's only one altar. There's only one way to worship God in an acceptable manner. And we would agree with them that there's only one way to worship God accept, acceptably, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. No one is able to come to the Father except through Christ. And so, so I have a lot of respect for the Western tribes at this moment because they're being really honest. They're sharing how they feel. But after being honest, after speaking up and reaching out, the next step in this process of reconciliation is absolutely vital. And that is that we listen up. And what this means is to rigorously listen for the sake of understanding to rigorously listen 
for the sake of understanding. The Western tribes, they've, they've, they've stated their worries and their concerns. Uh, now it's time to listen up. And listening up also means shutting up. Because we can't listen if we keep on talking. You, you see, sometimes in my own experience, and I've experienced this with, with, uh, with, with folks that I've been talking to as well, is that we can be so fixated on explaining our perspective, or we're so nervous about misspeaking because we're entering into a bit of a conflict that we talk and we talk and we talk. Well, I don't mean this. Well, what I mean is this. And you explain and you explain and you explain, and you never stop talking which means you're never listening. So you have to stop. You have to listen up. You have to take a breath. You have to pause because the floor now is owned by the other party. It's their turn. And so it's as the Western tribes allow the Eastern tribes room to speak that things start to become clear. That one more thing that the Western tribes had to learn about is about to come out. And so the Eastern tribes start in verse 22 by, um, by, by, by saying that God is our witness. You know, they use really strong language, uh, and they say three things twice. They say, the mighty one, mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, and let Israel know. They say he knows, and this is a source of comfort to us because when we're involved in a conflict or a misunderstanding, whether we're the ones drawing conclusions of others or we're the ones who feel that we've been wrongly accused, we can say the mighty one who is God, who is the Lord, he knows. And we can trust that the one whose opinion ultimately counts is that he's not fooled, he's not misled, he doesn't misunderstand, he knows and that for us should be a huge source of confidence. Verse 24, this is the, the Eastern tribes still speaking. They say this, no, we did it for fear that someday you, your descendants might say to us, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You, you have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. So what the Eastern tribes are afraid of is that since the altar of worship is way over in Shiloh, um, that they're afraid that the Western tribes are going, that maybe not right now, but maybe with their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren is that the Western tribes will not remember that the Eastern tribes are still part of, are still part of the children of Israel. And, uh, and so, the, you know, they're afraid of that because, you know, it's this thought out of sight, out of mind. And so knowing that the altar of worship was way over there in Shiloh, what the Eastern tribes did is they created their own altar nearer to where they were. But the thing is that this new altar wasn't really an altar at all. It was a pretend altar. It was a fake altar. It was like me when I'm sat in at, at here doing pastory things and I'm sat in, uh, I, I'm there at my workstation and I'm thinking holy thoughts and I'm writing sermons and I'm making phone calls and stuff. I look at the wall and there's a picture of 
my family. Now, I know that that picture is not my family. You know, I don't hug the picture and I don't lay it down at night and sing a song and say prayers. And I don't say, picture, would you like maybe to go out for a date? You know, I know that because the picture isn't reality. But the but what I do when I look at the picture is I say, ah, that's my family. And even though they're not here right now, it reminds me of them. And so really what this altar was right there on the border was a way for them to say, ah, oh, yes, the Lord. We have to worship him. We have to go over to Shiloh and we have to sacrifice to him. Let's remember that. And so they made it big. It looked, it looked really imposing because they wanted to remind themselves. And they wanted as well that when, when their children came along and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren is that they would always remember, first of all, who they are and whose they, they are. Whose they are. So verse 27 says this, On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And so I admire the eastern tribes as well. They took worship of God really seriously because what they made was like me finding a photo the size of my wall and sticking that on the wall so that wherever I was, I would turn and I would say, oh yeah, my family. You know, it's not just this, this, this you know, little three by five or or whatever on the desk. This is a massive one. And so that's what they were doing. And so I respect, yeah, the Eastern tribes. What they are doing is noble. But I also respect the Western tribes because they took worship of God really seriously, just like the Eastern tribes took worship of God seriously. They were ready to raise their swords to really defend the Lord and true worship and to root out what looked like uh, rebellion. And so both the Eastern tribes and the Western tribes are both examples to us. And what they're both examples of is verse 5, which says that we should love the Lord, that we should walk in obedience to him, that we should keep his commands, that we should hold fast onto him, that we should serve him with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Both the Eastern tribe and the Western tribes were trying to do that. But what I would say to you, and if there was anything I would say to the Western tribes, it's this. It's not to not listen to rumors, because I think we should listen to rumors. But when we hear rumors, what you should do is investigate to see whether it's true or not. And so, you know, we shouldn't be walking around with our hands over our ears saying, you know what, if I hear this, then it's wrong and it's sin. And so I don't want to hear it at all. We should listen to the rumors, especially if you're hearing that someone, you know, um, you know, that uh, it's about, you know, the worship of God and the honor of God and things like that. It's important that we do listen. But but to hold back from making a picture of someone that's not necessarily true. So hold up, resisting our, our assumptions, and then speaking up, reaching out, listening up, listening rigorously to understand. You see, there are some people who are 
who love speaking truth. They are truth seekers. And for them, truth is uncompromising and it's inflexible, which is right. It should be. But truth on its own is like a bone. Truth on its own is like a skeleton. It's hard and it hurts. It's unyielding. And so when truth seekers address a situation, when truth speakers address a situation, they might be talking about truth, but they leave a trail of carnage and hurt behind. But then there are others who would rather just speak love. They just want to throw loving arms of love and acceptance about everything. But love on its own is soft and flabby like a lump of flesh, which is a horrible image because there's no structure. There's just feeling and emotion. And love also, love alone leaves a trail of of carnage behind of folks who never realize that they have to change how they're living, who never realize that they have a blind spot in their life because you are just coming up to them and loving them in Christ. And so truth on its own is really dangerous. Truth can hurt. Truth can storm across a river and cause irreparable damage. But love on its own is also dangerous. It can foster this lie that no change has to be made Love can smother others with great, with great, great intentions. So neither is good on its own. Neither this hard skeletal truth or this soft flabby love. What you need is to have the skeleton and the flesh. And so when the skeleton of truth, again, it's a gruesome image. I hope you remember it. Uh, is that, is so, so when you have the skeleton of truth and you clothe it in the flesh of love, what you have is a true and a vital means of unity. This is what it means to speak the truth in love. And that's what we see eventually with the Western tribes. After holding up, after speaking up, after listening up, they then climb down. The Western tribes realized that they were not correct in the conclusion that they drew. They weren't wrong in their zeal for holiness and for worship, for true, proper worship. So they were right with that, but they were incorrect in the conclusion which they drew. And so they climb down, they repent, they actually backtrack. So verse 30 says this, um, When Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hands. I think, you know, they also rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hands because they ended up because they lingered long enough to find out the the true conclusion. And then what happens is that this team, this investigation team, crosses back over the Jordan, and they report back to the waiting army. They say to them, stand down. Uh, And then, you know, this, this tension that's had everyone waiting, what will happen? That ends and everyone goes home. And so the final point, this, this, this moment when we stand down is important. And what standing down means is lowering the weapons of war and reverting to a position, a posture of peace and of unity. 
And as followers of Christ, we are uniquely able to do that. We are uniquely able to, you know, to be up in arms and then to retreat to a place of unity. Why is it that we as followers in Christ are uniquely able to do this? Because when we've experienced the depth of the forgive, of the forgiveness of Christ, how can we not extend that to others who have hurt us much less? Because Christ has modeled for us what absolute grace and absolute truth and unswerving mercy looks like. And because he's modeled it for us, we can live it out in our own lives. And so part of what standing down looks like is that if you've maligned someone's name, if you've injured the reputation of someone in the eyes of more folks by drawing the wrong conclusion, then you have to go back to the people that you included in your circle of outrage at the beginning and you have to tell them you know what I was wrong no excuses no spin simply say you were wrong and you were sorry verse 32 says this then Phineas son of Eleazar, the, the priest and the leaders, returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and the Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They reported back. Then it says, they were glad to hear the report and they praised God and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. So they reported back and we have to do the same because just as we're so quick maybe to jump onto the rumor mill at the beginning, we have to be equally quick to make amends afterwards and to to say, look, what I said was not true. It was wrong. And there are too many feuds and there are too many conflicts that have gone on year after year, maybe maybe even generation after generation, because after the truth has been found out, one of the parties or both of the parties has not been willing to step down, to climb down, to report back and to repent with humility if necessary. And so after all this has happened, we end up with this last step, which is huddle up, which is to recommit to unity in Christ. Verse 34 says this, and the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. This could have all ended up absolutely differently. The Western tribes could have invaded the Eastern tribes, assured of their, of their absolutely correct interpretation of events. And the Eastern tribes might have said, well, if that's how you want to treat us, and you don't even give us the benefit of the doubt, then we want no part of you. But they didn't. What happened is that at the end of it, they huddled up, they renewed their commitment to each other and the Lord. And I love that this whole episode ends with the Eastern tribes who were wronged. And they name this, this, uh, yeah, the altar, a witness between us that the Lord is God. And for us, here at Cornerstone, isn't that the most important thing? That we have a witness between us that the Lord is God. And our witness is not a stone altar. Our witness is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our witness is the spirit of Jesus Christ who lives inside us. He's the one who draws us together, who reminds us who we are and whose we are. 
So as I wrap up now, the Western tribes, we have to remember this, that the Western tribes were right in their righteous outrage against this, what seemed like it was a rival altar, but they were incorrect in the conclusion which they drew. And the Eastern tribes were right in making this altar in the first place because it reminded them to worship God, but perhaps they should give, have given the Western tribes a bit of a heads up that this is what they were doing, that they were making an altar, that it's not really an altar, it's a fake altar, it's, it's like a photo on the wall. Maybe they should have had that sort of a conversation first. Um, so when we look at the barrier between the eastern tribes and the western tribes. It wasn't a river, and it wasn't sin. It was misunderstanding. Now, here's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, which is speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles, but I, I think it also uh, works in this situation. Ephesians 2, verse 14 says this, For he himself is our peace. This is speaking of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And here it is. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So this is the 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 the... This is the witness between us, the the most important thing about us, regardless of our doubts or our suspicions or our failures or our sins, our witness is that we're all reconciled with God through the cross. And if Christ was, if if Christ could unite us, um, no one else was able to, why aren't we able to do the same? So if we are going to speak to each other, let us speak with the knowledge of the price that Christ paid for our sins, standing as a backdrop behind us, that we have been cleansed, we have been set free from much, and so let us, let us set our brothers and sisters free as well. Let us hold up, let us speak up, let us listen up, let us climb down, and let us huddle up. Let us look at our own hearts and say, what is one more thing that I have to know about this? situation. Let's pray.